Let's pray first, and then we're going to talk about the Apostle Paul for a while. So let's pray together. Our good and mighty and powerful God, you have created all, and in your mercy and your justice, you have placed your people to be in Christ, that they might find a life. And because of that, we can call you our Father, and our, our hearts joy at calling you that. And so we pray today that you would be a blessing to all of your people, and to those that might be here that are not Christians yet, we pray you would be a blessing to them. Show them the beauty of Christ. Show them the the ugliness of their sin and how Christ is the satisfaction for that. And for us who know you and love you already, we pray you would visit us. We know that you are near to your people and help us to learn and study and, and find help for those things in our Christian lives that trouble us. For we, for we know you are a good God and you want to do that for us. And bless us in this classroom today, especially as we consider uh, the life of Paul and how he responded to very many things in faith and belief. And we say we want to learn to do that. Help us to respond in faith to all of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Come on in. Well, I'm going to ask a question. I want you to, to give me an answer. When you think of the Apostle Paul, what comes to your mind? Give me some words that describe what you think of him. Super Christian. Uh-huh. In chains. What's that? In chains. In chains, yes, many times. Anything else? Godly. Godly, yeah. He, he suffered well. He suffered well, yeah. He suffered well. When I think of the Apostle Paul, I have this vision of, of just this super perfect Christian. <laughs> you know, is, isn't that true? For, I mean, that's what I think. And, and so there's all this kind of thought about how Paul was, and you'll hear some commentators say, well, he was kind of cold and uncaring in some things he said. But just before we start, here's how what, what the Apostle Paul thought of himself in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. He's in the Macedonia, and he says, Our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were fightings, and inside were fears. Now, that sounds more like me, my version of me, than my version of the Apostle Paul. But Paul says... All this stuff was going outside, and he was fearful. So we're going to learn how he responded to those things today. And let's turn uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to start with. And we're going to find here that when tribulation comes, God abundantly comforts his people so that we can adore him in front of other people. We see that in Second uh, Corinthians 1. We'll look at verses 1, 1, 2, 8, and 9 to start with. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we... Right away, first of all, he mentions the Christians in Achaia. At this time, Christians in that region were undergoing terrible persecution. Um, 
They were persecuted for, for carrying the name of Christ. They weren't allowed to meet together in many locations. Uh, so it was just horrible. And Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and I think he brings up Achaia to say, you're not alone in whatever you're experiencing. This is not new. This is something Christians have experienced. So then in verses 8 and 9 he said, For we would not have you ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, so much that we despaired, even of life. But we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but trust in God, which raises the dead. So Paul in verse 8 starts here, and he has this, he kind of piles up these words, and, and he says we're pressed, we're burdened, we're, we're out of measure, above strength. Uh, and all of those words in the Greek are real powerful words. Sometimes we lose that in, in English, but um, a number of these words here have the prefix hooper in Greek, H-U-P-E-R. And what does that sound like? in our modern language. Hyper. Sounds like hyper, doesn't it? Yeah, so we think he, he didn't have, uh, he, he wasn't just pressed, he was hyper-pressed. He was pressed beyond his strength. And, and, and so we get this picture of this terrible thing that's going on. And he says, uh, Paul and Timothy, that they had the sentence of death in themselves. They were so stressed, that even to the point of death, and we, don't, and we don't know exactly, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what situation this is, but if you recall in Acts, there's a couple times where Paul was uh, in a, in a life-threatening situation. First is when the, the Jews had taken a vow to lie in wait along the roadside and kill him, and the second time was during the riot in Ephesus. Um, I just happened to think this might be the Ephesus riot. If you recall, he was kind of trapped there, and, and he couldn't get anywhere, and he, this whole mob was uh, just ready to kill him. And we, we've seen some of that in recent years, haven't we? These mobs just take over, and it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. So Paul isn't bragging, saying, oh, we were, we were almost killed, we were ready to die. He, he wants us to know that so that we can see the glory of God. And we can see that victory is very important. He says we had the sentence of death, so much so that we despaired even of life. So Paul is in this situation, and it's so serious that he had given up all human hope. Now, not discounting the, the power of God. He's not saying that. He's saying in myself that that fear that I had within me was this. This is this is it. There's nothing I can do. You ever felt like that? Had a fear like that inside you? He said, I can't, there's nothing I can do about this. And it's, you go to sleep and you sleep for a short period of time, an hour, you wake up, and, and what's right in your mind? That, whatever that thing is. And so Paul's saying, I had to have this experience of death so that I would give up the work of my own hands. I knew this was beyond me. And it's true for me. Um, I'm your typical alpha male. We solve problems. We take care of everything, right? With these things, these hands in our minds. 
And I need to know that so that I can say there are things that are beyond me. And I just, I don't, I have to go to God, but I need to, I need to build in me this character of, well, I want to go to God. God is so powerful. I want, I want to see him work in my life. So Paul needed his fleshly confidence destroyed, and, and I need that. Maybe some of you need that, too. So Paul's saying that's exactly what happened. It's overwhelming. He couldn't do anything about it. So let's work, look at verses 6 and 7. We see here we know that when hard things come, when we're beyond ourselves, the blessings of God become our strength. In verse 6 he says, Whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the suffering, so shall you also be of the consolation. So Paul says in verse 10, then, as we look at 10 and 11, who delivered us, God, that God which raised us from the dead, is the one that delivered us from so great a death and does deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. And you also, helping together by prayer for us, that the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. So what's, what's going on here in this section? Well, Paul says he's, he's trusting that God is going to deliver him, and God will yet deliver him. Paul had seen God deliver him before, and he knows that God is going to need to deliver him again. He's saying this comfort that we have, this affliction, this consolation that has come. Um, it's come in the past. We've had these problems. We've had these difficulties. And we're confident that the God who delivered us then is the same God who can deliver us now. And interestingly, in verse 11, he says, You also helping together by prayer for us. So the, the Corinthians had prayed for Paul. And in this particular instance, he's thinking they prayed for him and Timothy when they are in this, this, this despairing, uh, life-threatening situation. And so the Corinthians gave help and encouragement and comfort by their prayers. But isn't that kind of an interesting thing? What do we say sometimes? Well, we get in this situation and say, well, I'm not, I'm not a good enough Christian to have God help me, or I haven't been a good enough Christian this week, so I'm just going to like get through this thing until I can be a good enough Christian for a few more days, and then maybe God will help me over here. And uh, maybe you say, I got enough of my own troubles. I can't handle my own life. How can I help anybody else? And if you remember the Corinthians, what were they like? They were a pretty sorry bunch of Christians, weren't they? <laughs> Sinners saved by grace. They needed a conference on sanctification. <laughs> they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They had the wrong view of marriage. Um, they were immoral. And the Bible says what? They were doing things that the heathen people wouldn't even talk about. The Christians were doing things that bad that heathens wouldn't even talk about it. 
And what does Paul say? I need the prayers of those people. And he calls their prayers a gift. Interestingly, what we just heard was a, a whole session on grace. And the word here in verse 11, for the gift bestowed upon us, the word there for gift in the Greek is grace. It's the word charis. And it says, we could say that you helped us by your prayers for the grace that you bestowed upon us by the means of many people. You prayed for us. You gave us grace. It helped us. And other people are going to see what God did and delight in that. So how do we apply that? Well, I'm betting that nobody in this room is doing anything near what the Corinthian Christians were doing in their life. Now, you may surprise me. There may be a, you know, a closet axe murder or hanging around. <laughs> I don't think so. You all have that. Uh, that countenance that is that doesn't indicate that. And even in our, our our hidden lives, you know, we we think things that are wrong, and we sometimes even follow through on those temptations and sin things that are wrong. But I don't think we can be as bad as the Corinthians. So what is Paul saying? Other people need your prayers. That's how you give grace to other people. We're told to minister grace and not fail grace. And, and minister grace to the hearer and that sort of thing. And that's one way we do it, is that we pray for other people. So your prayers are a gift. It causes people to glorify God. And in verse 5, we see that this grace that comes, that is a blessing, comes in abundance. Whereas the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And abound is another one of those super powerful words. Super abundance. As our sufferings are very abundant, so also the consolation of God. And there's one more thing that God shows us here in, in addition to his abundant grace and blessings. God gives us one more blessing, and that it is that he is very near to us. In verse 3 and 4, Paul writes, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And this is that the key of that entire passage is in verse 3. And in fact, it's in that first word of verse 3, where it says, Blessed, blessed be God. Blessed is the word you want to think about, because that's what it gives us an indication of how Paul responds in all of these situations of life. The word in the Greek is a, is a derivative form of a word. There's a, a word in the Greek called eulogio, and it means, literally means good speak. And what does eulogio sound like? Eulogy. Sounds like eulogy. Now... We only think of eulogies at funerals, don't we? But what do we do in a eulogy? We're speaking good about the person. And this is a derivative of that word. It's eulogetos. And the T-O-S ending is only ever used to talk about God. So it's speaking good and praising God. That's all tied up in that word blessed. And we see it a lot in, in uh, a number of times in the New Testament. Blessed be God, the Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's always the word eulogetics. So Paul starts out this passage. He's going to say, I was at a time where I was in severe physical crisis. I thought I was going to die. And how does Paul respond to thinking he's going to die? I need to speak good of and praise God. And we're going to find out what's driving Paul at the end of that. But that's his response. Now, in counseling, if you've ever counseled people, you know sometimes um, we can go to the scriptures, and scriptures say, do this and don't do that. Put this on, put this off, act this way, not that way. Um, so we can look at the Bible and say, if you're doing this, you should stop doing that. Without even knowing why. It's just wrong to do that. God says it's wrong. We believe in, in the providence of God and the communication he's given us in the scriptures that they're true and inerrant. So we just need to stop doing that. And that's true. Uh, sometimes it helps a person in counseling, though, if you can find out what's in their heart that's driving this behavior. If you can get behind the behavior itself to what makes them want to do that, it, it makes counseling much more effective and much much easier. So then in verse uh, 4 then, Paul writes, who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. And it's interesting that in these first 11 verses in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses five different words for comfort. Now what's the one we all, we all know? Paraclete, right, for the, for the Holy Spirit. And uh, he was a, a derivation of that word here, paracletlo, which means to come alongside. And paraclesis is a word that means hope, encouragement, and comfort. So Paul goes back and forth in, the, in these 11 verses talking about this comfort. And sometimes it's one who comes alongside, and other times it's the comfort of hope and encouragement and exhortation. So what he's saying here is, this is kind of like that mother's hug. Now, you all that were mothers, that hug is, is kind of a uh, multifunctional kind of thing, doesn't it? It fixes the skin knees, it fixes the lost puppies, it fixes the bad grades in high school, it fixes the lost boyfriend, it fixes the lost girlfriend, it fixes the son or daughter when they have their children and there's a problem with the grandchildren. That mother's hug fixes everything. And Paul's saying that's what you need to do. Sometimes we look at this passage and we say, well, we're to go alongside someone and comfort them. So if, let's say, um, someone's lost a child, that means I can go comfort somebody else that's lost a child. Well, that's true. But it's, you don't have to just look for people that have lost a child. If someone lost a job, you can comfort them. If someone is ill, you can comfort them, because the important thing you're passing on is not that specific situation. It's the hug you got from God. That you experience when God comforted you. You can take that to anybody that needs comfort. So don't read these passages and think, well, I haven't experienced that, 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 that. That isn't the point. The point is you've experienced the comfort of God. And so you pass that along to someone else. What is Paul doing here? He's saying, I have the sentence of death. And my response to that was to 
speak good of and praise God. And he started right at the beginning of that passage with saying, Blessed be God. So Paul does this in, uh, in a different passage, in a different situation. Paul's had a lot of situations in his life, as, as you know, we heard at the beginning. So let's look at Romans 9. And this is a completely different situation for him. Romans 9, we'll read, uh, we'll read the first five verses. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, who are the fathers, and of, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is at this point in his life where he is now getting some, some criticism from, from some of the Jews. And they're saying, well, Paul, what about the Jews? You know, what, what do you say about them? They, uh, there was this claim made that Paul was a traitor to his countrymen. So here he defends himself. He starts out by saying, even though what I'm about to say sounds astounding, it's true. I feel this way. I'm not lying. He says, I say the truth in Christ. So we do that in our culture too, don't we? When we want someone to believe us, what do we say? I won't tell you how old I am, but if, if you're over 60, what's the very first thing one you said as a kid? Cross my heart and hope to die. Yeah, that's why now I'm telling the truth. Uh, sometimes we say, God is my witness, you know, or heaven is my witness, something like that, or, or let me be honest with you. And what's the common vernacular in the millennials? Are you serious right now? Yeah, I'm not kidding. I'm serious. Or you're not serious. Yeah, I am serious. So we have those kinds of phrases, and Paul's saying that very thing. And why does he have to start out like that? Well, he's going to go on and talk about the Jews and his countrymen. And he starts out saying that because sacrificial love is something that unbelievers can't understand, is it? They just really don't know about care and compassion, especially sacrificial love for somebody that's not in your family. If you show that kind of love to someone not even related to you, they don't understand that. And um, if you're around unbelievers, you can see that's, that's very true. They don't have a lot of close friends. And there aren't people that, that give of themselves expecting nothing in return. And so that's an unusual thing for them. You and I both know um, that loving people that way has a cost, doesn't it? It has a cost to us, and it costs us something. Paul says that in verse 2, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Here again, he's piling on those words, great heaviness, continual sorrow. Those are all big, 
heavy, burdensome words that he's saying. Literally translated, that would be, I have unceasing pain in the heart of me. Or I wrestle with a great sadness that never leaves my heart. And we have those things too, don't we? And sometimes we stop right there. We kind of stop at the sadness. We don't want to go further. We, we lose hope. We give up. We say, this is how it is, and this is how it's going to be, and it won't change. Well, I can tell you some news. If God can change me, he can change anybody. Because I was a wicked, vile sinner into my 20s. And God can change people, and God can change that situation, and we know that. We, we know it in our head, but we have to keep it in our hearts. We have to keep faith. We have to, to not lose hope. Sometimes we can't see ahead with faith. We, we forget that faith is focusing on those things that we can't see yet, right? And we, we're so limited by our vision. Those things are unseen. Those are the things hoped for, and that's what faith is, and sometimes we lose that. So Paul says that. I have that kind of feeling in my heart. This is so sad. I can't get over this. But he he doesn't stop there. He had hope. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So he goes from talking about his brethren, and then he talks about that he has this hope. Interestingly, the verb tenses in, in chapter 9, verse 2, are the exact same verb tenses in chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, I have this great sadness in my heart, but I have this great hope that my countrymen will be saved, that God might save the Jews. So there were two things in Paul's heart. What was the first one? Great sadness. Heavy, burdensome, terrible sadness. What was the second thing in his heart? Great hope. Hope in God. Who can change people? Who can save people? Who can show people a vision of himself and a vision of Christ where, where a person just falls down like Paul did on the road and say, Who are you, Lord? He under, and he knew. He knew this was not normal. So even if this person that you may be thinking of now brings you great sadness and it affects you, it's not a reason to give up hope. Don't give up hope. Don't despair. I'm screaming a verse in me. Can I please say it since you said Sure, go ahead. It carried me through my early days working at hospice. And it said, I would have despaired unless I had seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Right. How good is our God? There's only one person the entire Bible calls good. Who is that? God himself. Yeah, that's great. Oh, I get it. I know, I that one. There's a... Uh, this isn't in the notes. This is for a charge. There's a... Uh, there's a, a real dry theological doctrine called aseity, which means that God is complete in and of himself. There's another dry theological doctrine called omnipresence, which means God is everywhere. There's a little subset of that called immensity. And I just love that doctrine. It says God is so big and so immense 
and, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but this little piece of air over here, God is in his complete entire fullness right here in this spot in the universe. And in this spot over here, God is in his complete entire fullness. It's not like a gas. You remember from high school, a gas will spread out to fill a container. God isn't like that. He's completely, fully present in all his Godhead power, infinite majesty and wisdom here and here and everywhere. So... Our God is full of hope. Well, we'll look at verse 3 here. And sometimes we think all these people, these, these Jews, they don't get it. They're not paying attention. Paul says, I could wish that I were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. How many times do we get so sad over people we think, why can't they see the truth? Well, until God does some kind of divine work, until the scales fall from their eyes, they won't be able to see the truth. So what do you do? What do I do? We keep praying. We keep giving that grace of our prayers to that person. So you, and Paul knew, he says, he doesn't say, I do wish he knew, he knew you can't do that. He said, but I, my heart says I could wish this. I, my heart wants to wish this. I want to give that person all the blessings of my relationship with Christ. I want them to have my place and I'll take their place. And, and we hear that a lot. Um, we had a friend whose 14-year-old son died tragically in an accident, just, just went from life to eternal life. Amazing. Wonderfully. He went, he went to eternal life. So, But those things are, it's just, it, it hits you. You walk around the corner, it's like the devil's there with a two-by-four to get you right in the head. And you go, ha, ah. you can't breathe, you don't want to eat. And what did this boy's grandmother say? Why couldn't God take me? <laughs> we feel that way, don't we? Uh, and so it's not hard to see how Paul felt this way. We feel that, that same way many times, but we know that's not true. They still remain away from God. You pray, you pray, you pray, you keep praying. Uh, this is, uh, uh, until they're gone, God isn't done yet with his plan until they're gone or until we're gone, one or the other. So we keep doing all of that. So how can they believe this way, knowing the truths of the scriptures? And Paul says the same thing about the Israelites in verse 4. So these are Israelites. They have the adoption. They have the glory. They have the Shekinah glory. They have the covenants. They have the giving of the law. They have the service of God. They have the promises. They had all of this. Why can't they see it? And in the Christian church, there's people that, well, some people think Paul wrote Hebrews, but, uh, and other people say no. Um, so I won't intrude on any of that. I have an opinion, but that's just an opinion. But in Hebrews 6, we see the same thing in Christians, right? There are people that have tasted of the heavenly gift, and then they cast it aside. How can, and we, we just marvel, how can people do that? Well, Paul has a remedy for this kind of sadness. 
think of other people, when we think of other people's hearts or heart towards God who are away from God, they can't see God work. They're, they love their sin. And, uh, and Paul has a remedy, and it's in verse 5, the very last part. And he says, God be blessed forever. And if you guessed it, it's that same word that we talked about before, eulogetos. Paul says, this, this crushing heaviness in my heart consumes me. How do I deal with it? I speak good of and praise God. That was his response to such a burden. He praises God for the history of his people. He praises God for who Christ is. He praises God in this passage that, that Paul himself is in Christ and he knows it. And he knows and he trusts that one day Christ will have his way with that person that's causing him sadness. And Christ will have his way with that person that's causing you sadness. So in verse 5 he sees, he says, Of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. And that over all is the crucial part. Not only is Christ over everything, he is over everything concerning an individual. It's the totality of the group and the totality of the individual. So that person that causes us sadness, Christ is over all. That person who is wicked and sinful and, and hates God and is running the other way, God is over all of that. Can we trust Christ? We certainly can. Can we trust God? God gave everything that we might live. He said, I want these people, my people, to live with me forever. And he gave it all. And he will continue to do that. So keep that unending hope in your heart like Paul. Don't despair. Don't give up. Don't be tempted to live not in faith. Stay in faith and hope. And we're going to depart from Paul for just a minute and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is talking to us here in these first verses about heaven. And he's telling us about the future rewards for joy. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Peter starts right out. He's going to go talk about the glories of heaven in the next uh, few verses. But in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what do you think that word for blessed is? It's that same word, eulogetos. Right away Peter says, I'm going to speak good of God, and I'm going to praise God. So why did the apostle praise God so much? Well, I think it's the same reason we can. They knew who they were, and they know who they are now. And they know it's not because of themselves. It's because of a good and kind and gracious and merciful God who has done that. So Peter goes on to tell us that we need to praise God because he has taken away the misery of our sin. And in the next part of verse 3, Peter writes, which according to his abundant mercy, 
Well, God's mercy is fully abundant. And mercy here is used in the context of consequence for sin. So Peter said, God, in his abundant taking away of the consequence for our sin. And our sins, whether they were abundant or few, and whether they've mostly stopped or they continue, and whether they've largely stopped, but there's that that one little spot, that one little blemish that Christ has to keep washing away. Peter says God's abundant mercy is going to take that away. I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, when you get a when you were a little kid, you got a cut, and mom would have those home remedies, and, and some of them would stay, wouldn't they? Even soap and water sometimes would stay. We were in the days of Mercurical and stuff, you know, you wore this, you had this tattoo of, of honor on your cut. Praise God. And what happens when Christ is is washing away those spots and blemishes? Sometimes they, well, they stay, right? What do we do sometimes? Well, sometimes what I do is say, Lord, I, I sure wish you could just leave that one alone. Right? I'll, I'll hang on to that one for a while because that one hurts too much. But God is merciful, isn't he? According to his abundant mercy, he has alleviated our misery over sin. And the reason he does this is because he continually warms our hearts. Peter goes on to say, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again unto a lively hope. And lively hope literally means to be warm. Now some of you have been Christians probably all your life. You were raised by godly parents and, and you just never knew a time when you, you didn't belong to Christ. I, I didn't have that experience. So I had a heart that was kind of stony and ugly. So I know what it means to have your heart changed. Because from one quarter to the next in college, I went home and my dad said, there's something different about you. I can tell you what it is. And uh, it took about, I don't know, how many years, dear? 20 plus years for my dad to understand what happened. And it took 15 or so years for my mother to understand what happened. But they knew there was, the death wasn't there anymore. There was a life. So they knew and God warms us. And so, you know, we, we walk around the corner and the devil is there, right? And he gets us. All right, we're tempted. You know, it's, it's that one. He knows. He knows which way to get that knife in and twist. And so we fall, and what happens? Well, we, we've quenched the spirit, right? Now we're cold. But what does Peter say? He's begotten you again. And the verb tense there is continuous, repeated action. Over and over and over again, God warms us. He takes that cold heart and makes it warm and soft towards him. Not only does he warm us and change us, it, it reminds us that our expectation is not in ourselves. In the end of verse 3, 
He's begotten us again to this lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away. And Peter must have borrowed Paul's writing skills here because he talks about this inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and fades not away. And, and there's a there's a, 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 a figure of speech in the Greek called a hendiatrus where you put these things in series. And Peter is saying here, your inheritance in heaven that God has gotten for you is unfadingly, unfaded, will never fade. It's three words that just kind of build on top of each other. And he says, God has warned you. He wants you in his heaven. He, he wants you as his child. He, he has called you to be his. And your inheritance will never, ever, ever fade. It can't fade. It's unfading. It's permanent. It, it's, it can never be removed by anything. And he does that just for emphasis. So God is caring for his people. And in verse... Uh, the end of verse 4, he says, This inheritance is reserved in heaven for you, and you are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, reserved in heaven for you. This is very interesting. Reserved in heaven for you literally means to watch. And that's kind of different. And who are kept literally means to be a watcher in advance. So who's watching? Just take a guess. Well, God's watching. And what is he watching for? He's watching for these people that he has given this unfading, incorruptible inheritance to. He's watching for them to come to be with him. This this life, as much as we like it, isn't isn't really kind of normal for us, is it? We're separated from our our great God and King. We're separated from our Father, and so God is saying, "I'm in heaven, and I'm watching for you. And in advance, I'm watching for you because you're ready to be revealed in the last time." And God is watching and waiting for that. Now, it doesn't diminish who God is. It shows us how great he loves us. And so now we can be joyful. Verse 6 says, we're in that, we can greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness to manifold temptations. And you have to laugh. If you look at the word rejoice in the Greek... It's a word that means very much leaping. Very much leaping. So when we rejoice, what should we be doing? We should be leaping. I mean, maybe, we, you know, I'm, I'm much too inhibited to physically do that anywhere. Uh, even at sports, nowhere do I leap. But in my mind, in my, in my spirit, I can leap. You know, uh, it, it didn't have it in the bio, but I go to a Presbyterian church. There's no leaping. There's no way Presbyterians can do that. But I can leap in my heart. I can, I can rejoice in this. I can look at myself and say, Oh, God, who shall free me from this body of death? Praise God, it's Jesus, and he's done that. 
So now for a season, and if we, uh, if we translate that literally, now for a season means one word, and it means puny. This puny stuff we're, we're going through now that, that in our minds is huge, and in many ways it is huge, but it's small. When it's compared not to us, but compared to God's power, it's small. So there are, there are present, those are future rewards of adoring God and giving Him good and speaking good of Him and praising Him. But there's present rewards too, and that's in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. So Paul again goes back to one of his favorite words, blessed. I'm going to speak good of God, and I'm going to praise God. He starts out by adoring God. When we talk about adoration, uh, many times as being a very powerful emotion, uh, and it is, and so we should adore God. And, and Paul's here saying, it's more than just praising God for what he's done. It's not a, um, you, you bless me and I'll praise you kind of thing. It's, it's much more than that. It's, God, it's that God is worthy of praise just because of who he is. And we all know that as Christians if we've been around uh, a church a little bit. It's two separate matters. I'm going to praise God for who he is. But I'm also going to praise God for what he does. And in the second part of verse 3, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That word blessed there is the other word for speak, the eulogeo word, the eulogy word. So God is to be praised because he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's also the God who has eulogized us. So what's Paul saying? God has spoken well of us, and he continues to speak well of us. And right away, we go, oh, I, I don't deserve that, but in Christ we do. It's not us. And it's uh, the, the, the Greek verb here is at some point in time, God spoke well of you. So when was that? Well, I think it's at our conversion, isn't it? Um, it's not uh, unheard of for God to speak well of people. Where did that happen? Elsewhere in the Bible. A familiar time was, it's right on the tip of your tongue. Is it with Job, right? What's he say to the devil? Consider my servant Job. Oh, yes. Right? God is speaking to the enemy and saying, well, have you looked at Job? Go <laughs> So God has spoken well of us. And, and it's interesting that this, this eulogio in 
this particular passage, it's not only speaking but acting. So it says God is speaking well of us and he's acting well for us on our, on our behalf. Now, um, one of the things in my life previously that I really liked was pride. Um, so I hope I've gotten through you know, a good part of that. But what happens if you know I'm walking down the hall and I hear two people talk and they say, you know, that Bob guy, man, he's he's really pretty cool. What happens? We we like that, don't we? Yeah. So we're all sufficiently humble here, I know. But we can rejoice. God is speaking well of us. And he's looking at who we are, and he's looking at who we're going to be, and he's looking at when we get that inheritance that is reserved for us. He said, these are my people. We, we took a little detour with, uh, with Adam and Eve and the fall, but these are the people I wanted. And we get to heaven, it's not going to be, well, I have to praise God. I mean, aren't you going to be open? We're going to say, oh, this, I want to do this every, and it won't be any time, so I'm just never going to stop doing this. So God is speaking well of you, and he's doing things for your benefit, and he delights in doing good things for you. With all spiritual blessings, there at the end of verse 3, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Well, we're in Christ, we're holy, we're without blame, we can stand before God. And God's good actions is that he speaks well of you, and he speaks well of me, because he is good. We'll skip down to verse 6. In that Ephesians passage, it says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the Beloved. He has made us accepted in the beloved. The word there, accepted, is, this, is one of the words we've been talking about all day. It's grace. He has made us accepted because of grace. And now, we, because we are accepted, we can minister that grace to other people. Here's the amazing aspect of this. God is speaking well of you and I. He's thinking well of us. He's giving us good gifts. He's choosing people out for himself from before the foundation of the world. He's grafting us into Christ, and it's all of his doing, isn't it? And after he's done all of those things, he says, I have joy in you. That's an amazing thing. We can praise God because he makes us lovely. And every one of you, every Christian, brings him great joy. So, what uh, we see how Paul reacted in, in a time of when he was confronted with death, he praised God. He had great sadness in his heart, he praised God. Peter's looking ahead to the fulfillment, and he praises God. We're living this life now that has its you know, rough spots on this pathway, but we can praise God too for what he thinks about us and what he's doing for us. So we can see what Paul did and we can just say, I need to do that. And that's, that's good enough. But 
what drove Paul's heart? What was really behind all of this? And I think it's a verse in Philippians chapter 1 where he tells us what he thought. And he says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So what was driving Paul's praise of God in all of these terrible situations? He knew that God loved him, that God cared for him, that there was not any kind of adversarial relationship. It was a loving Heavenly Father. And he knew that whatever came his way was going to be the best thing for him. And sometimes we talk about the providence of God and God ordaining various things and certain things that happen to us. And I think this is where Paul's super-Christianity is really valid. He knew that if God gave him life, God would be glorified. But he knew that if God took away his life and he died, even in the ugliness of a riot in Ephesus, that Christ would still be glorified in his death. So Paul went out into these situations and said, if I'm hanging onto a piece of wood in an ocean overnight, Christ is glorified in that. If I get bitten by a snake that should kill me, Christ is glorified. If I'm so sad about people that I can't get over it, Christ is going to be glorified. So he looks to God and he says, You are God. I praise you for who you are. You have been kind and gracious and you have blessed me in these many ways. And I praise you for that. But I praise you for who you are. I trust you. I am in your hands. Your hands will hold me up. And we have that verse in the Psalms. It says what? God has held me up by my right hand. So God's the Father, isn't he? Where's the little kid? Where's me? I'm the little guy down here with my hand up, and God is holding me by that hand. And so if you're in a, a physical crisis today, or a sadness crisis, or if you doubt your assurance, the assurance of your salvation, or if you're just not sure how this life is going to work out, and will this thing ever end, praise God. Speak good of God. Praise Him and bless Him and commit yourself to the One who gave His Son and died that we might live. Don't give up hope. Our God is great.